This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is South Carolina short story writer, and I've been a fan of his for a long time, George Singleton. And we're going to talk about his latest book. Uh, he has, I think, almost a dozen under his his belt by now. And it's called You Want More, Selected Stories. So... George, with that long introduction, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's good to see you. Let's let's talk a little bit about George Singleton because I have a lot of guests in here. Many of them are come years, not been years, uh, and I'm guilty. I've only been here since 1965. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, let's let's talk a little bit about George Singleton. Who you are, who your people, where you went to school. I know you got educated. Well, that's, that's questionable, but uh, I, I pretended well. Yeah, I, I was uh, well. I was actually born in Anaheim, California. My dad was a merchant seaman, but he had a bad accident in 1963 and fell 45 feet. Oh dear! And broke 57 bones, hips, back, all so that. Did he? Was that in the water or to a dock? No, into the into the hold of a ship. Oh gosh! Into okay. the into the empty hold. So we moved to uh, he was he was disabled, and we moved to South Carolina in 1965 to Greenwood, South Carolina, where his father lived, my grandfather. Um, so I was brought up in Greenwood from 65 to um, 76. Went to Greenwood High School. Uh, then somehow I think Furman felt sorry for me or something, so I I went to Furman and studied philosophy, and that didn't get me a lot of jobs. My father who had a 10th grade education, um, said one time, what do, you, what do you want to do in life? Or, what are you going to do? And I said, I, Dad, I guess I'm going to go to law school. And he said, do you, do you want to go to law school? you want to be a lawyer? And I said, not really, Dad. I, I really want to be a writer, and I want to study philosophy. And he said, well, then, why, then do that. Why would you ever spend 45 years of your life working a job you didn't like? Thank you, Dad. Thank you for your blessing. I thought. I probably didn't say it. Then, after I graduated with my degree in philosophy and working jobs like at a Budweiser warehouse and a dishwasher and painting houses, and before I went to graduate school, uh, my father used to call me up a lot of times about five in the morning. Sometimes I was just getting in. So I'd answer the phone and my father would say, hey, I'm looking at the one ads. I don't see any philosopher for hire. Ha ha ha. And then he'd just hang up on me. <laughs> and unfortunately, he passed away when I was 24. He, he ended up getting cancer. He didn't smoke or anything, but he had lung cancer and, and passed away early. I must say, I was, I was laughing when, at the call, but when he told you to, to follow your dream, that just took me back to the second semester of my freshman year at Davidson, and I was pre-med, and chemistry and I did not like one another, and I called my dad and said, I'm not going to be pre-med, and he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I've always loved history, and I'm going to major in history, and then he said, what in the blue blazes are you going to do with the history degree? <laughs> and I said, I might could go to law school, and I took a couple of courses. I had basically pre-law courses, uh, constitutional law, and I thought, oh, my Lord, this is so bloody boring. I can't possibly do that. So then he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go to graduate school and get a Ph.D. And there was this dead silence, and, son, I agreed to pay for four years for education. You're on your own. So Wow. Uh, yeah. I came to graduate school. I had a graduate assistantship, and um, that never, never looked back, but... You know, I, he was a businessman. His father was a businessman. Um, both of his brothers-in-law had been in the military service, and here I was. I wanted to be an academic. Oh, you were. You were. Uh, did he ever? Did he live long enough to see you succeed? He, yes, he lived to be almost a hundred and one. And. Um, the little book I did on the revolution in, in the back country, I dedicated to him and to my mom yeah. because I really, he didn't understand it until I explained it to him that he didn't say what to do with a history degree, but I grew up in the family that told stories and they talked about the history of the town or they talked about the history of the family or a crazy neighbor. Or, and he just said, I didn't think that was history. I said, Dad, it was all great local history. It is great history. That's I, I'm the same way. My father was a real 
uh, storyteller. And, and, and then later in life, I've realized a lot of these stories were not true. Um, I knew he grew up kind of poor, but he, he said that they were so poor that his mother, her name was Nelta, his biological mom, would cut grass and make grass soup out of it. And there, there toward the end of his life, I said something kind of smart-alecky about, hey, do you want to you boil that grass soup? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know how grandma used to have to feed you grass soup because you were so poor. And he said, we never had grass soup. So, you know, I have no clue what were the real ones and what, what were fake. But there might have been people in the time he grew up in, in the South where that would not have been a— Oh, probably so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, poke salad? Yeah, well, poke salad. We, now it's a delicacy almost, you know. Okay, so you went to Furman— you're doing odd jobs. When did you start writing? Yeah, well, I started writing when I was about 21. I mean, I started writing some bad poetry. First of all, I need to say this. In high school, I had only read like Wuthering Heights, Charles Dickens, Ethan Frome, Scarlet Letter. So when I went off to college, I thought that all literature was really depressing and sad. (laughs) You know, I thought, man, that's so I had no clue. And then I had some professors that I really got turned on to Eugene Ionesco, the playwright, and Samuel Beckett, the playwright. And then I had professors who said, here, read, you might like this. You know, Thomas Pynchon, and, and I was reading the wrong things, to be quite honest. I, uh, I didn't go back and read Faulkner and, and all the kind of classics until I was probably in my 30s. I didn't read Flannery O'Connor, I can tell you, until I was 27 or 28. And that's when things started changing for me. Uh, so I wrote hard from um, 21 on and I didn't know when I didn't know how to mail stuff off and I, I and, and I'm just where are you live where are you living now 21 I was in Greenville and then then I lived in Greenwood back again uh, for a little bit and then I went to school up near DC at George Mason for a semester I just didn't like it and then I painted houses some more but I was still writing the whole time so um, you know, I finished this one big old novel that was 450 pages, and it was terrible. And I knew it was terrible about page 300, but I went, I'm going to plow through this and finished it and started another one using a minor character in the first novel and finished it and then started a third novel with a minor character from the second novel. It's kind of like Sourdough Starter. <laughs> um, okay. I didn't know how to send it off or anything. Meanwhile, I had all these people telling me, you know, you're from a small cotton cotton mill town in the south, and you're writing about the first one was about Nice, France. Took place in Nice, France, because I'd been there for ten days, Walter. The second one took place in uh, Washington D.C. because I'd spent eight months there. Third one was in Memphis, where I'd never even been to Memphis, but I had a map of the place. So that's about the time. Also, I started reading more short stories uh, than novels, and came across Flannery O'Connor. And then I went, "Oh, now I now I get it. You know, now I see." And I started reading a little bit later, Lewis Norton and um, you know Barry Hanna and uh, some some more, and John Cheever. You know, just short story writers, and and kind of really stuck with it. Who was giving you advice now? I mean, and, you know, you've, you've gone up to your 27, you're still in Greenwood, and you're writing. Uh, no, you... no. When I, yeah, when I was 27, I was in Greensboro by then. I, I went to um, graduate school at UNC Greensboro, and so Fred Chapel was the okay. my main guy there. And his, his advice was, this was back in a time when you could be a little bit more truthful in class. I was taking a poetry workshop with him, and he handed back a poem to me in front of the class and said, Never write poetry again. You're just not smart enough. Stick to fiction. <laughs> I, went, I didn't want to write poetry anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, th- that would bring you up before some academic yeah, council today. Get in trouble. Uh, although, you know, the truth hurts, but that isn't always what people want to hear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The truth does hurt. <laughs> I mean, I kind of felt tears in my eyes, you know, and uh, but in the long run, that was that was right. And Fred was also he's generous as could be. Was always just handing off books and saying, here, read this, read this, this might help. And just, you know, he's a, a good good writer and professor. All right. Did he tell you, let's start writing short stories? No, I don't think anybody really told me to do that. I, You know, I got a job at Francis Marion. Back then, it's called Francis Marion College. And I was teaching four classes a semester with 25 students in a class. They were required to write 10 final essays in every class. There was a lot of grading. And I just didn't have the patience to write another big novel and 
and I was teaching more short stories and I was learning more. So, I, and then like the first story I ever wrote uh, got picked up by uh, Southwester Review, a little literary journal. Now, it's, it's the first short story I wrote, but I've been writing for seven or eight years. You know, it's not like it was overnight kind of thing. Well, how did they pick it up? Oh, I sent it. You know, I kind of, I, back in the day, you would get um, this big fat book called uh, Writer's Market, and I would just kind of look through that and pick places to send it. In the old days, you know, you'd put a photocopy of it in a manila envelope and put a SASE in there. Um, so I was, I was doing that. I didn't know, no one told me how to be more selective in that writer's market book. I, I wrote a story one time about a stand-up comedian, and I was looking at the magazine, at the, at the book, the um, writer's market, and there was a, a magazine called Inside Joke. Inside Joke. I said, well, Inside Joke. I will send my story about the stand-up comedian to Inside Joke. And they took it. And, you know, maybe six months later, I got a copy of it. And it was a stapled Xerox copy of a magazine that was given out free to the prison population (laughs) of America. And so then the next issue, there were fan letters from prisoners for my story. So I thought, (laughs) I might want to check these out a little bit better. Okay. So your first real publication came from this literary journal. Yes. Uh, And... What happened after that? What was that? The sourdough starter? Yeah, that kind of was uh, because then I went, wow, um, that felt good, you know. And and then I started. I had a little run of good luck, like in like Georgia Review, and then there was this magazine called The Quarterly. It was run by Gordon Lish. Gordon Lish was probably a little bit. More, he's a writer, but he's probably a little bit more famous for being an editor f- to Raymond Carver and Barry Anna. And he's well known for cutting the heck out of uh, stories. And mine went from 18 pages down to three. Um, actually went from 18 to 10. And then he called me and said, I'm going to do another little cut. Just trust me. I said, OK, Mr. Lish, I'll trust you. And it came out three pages. And to be honest, I didn't think it made any sense at all. But so George Review and then Southern Review. Now, Southern Review is a little bit later, but a lot of literary journals. Um, then in about the late 1990s, a, I started going around the Pickens County flea market and talking to people and kind of learned about that. This is before American Pickers, that TV show. I think they owe me. And then I, I just went on a good tear. And I, and I also had been reading Lewis Norton and this buddy of mine named Dale Ray Phillips about these kind of first-person retrospective stories. There's a bunch in this book about a, an adult looking back at when he was a kid and having usually kind of a unbalanced father. I started writing those types of stories. And they started hitting pretty big, I think. I mean, Atlantic Monthly took one, and Harper's took one, and Zoetrope. Um, I just had a story in Playboy uh, that was the cleanest story I've ever written. So they just started hitting. Is that in this collection? The Playboy story? Uh Yeah, there are two of them in there. One is called Outlaw Head and Tail, and one is called... Oh. I forget what the other one's called, Walter. It's... uh, that's okay. It might have been, I could have told you if you hadn't asked. That was it. Yeah. Okay. You're getting reception. You're publishing. What is your day job? This oh, time? back then I was teaching. So I taught at Francis Mary, and then I taught at a place called the Greenville Fine Arts Center. I taught at the Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities for you, 13 years. Yeah, I know. You, you, you spent a lot of time there. So, so you, you have gone from being the struggling artist, writer, you know, waiting tables and what have you? You actually have it. You have a teaching job, but you're you're teaching really what you love, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And meanwhile, I was just writing and writing and writing. You know. Also, I I need to go back to tell this story. In uh, 1988, uh, I had just published a handful of short stories, and an agent um, named um, Nat Sobel contacted me, and he tried to. He said, "Do you have a collection?" I said, "Yes, I do," which I didn't, but I kind of finished it up and. Sent it to him, and he tried to push it. He said, have you ever written a novel? Have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I said, well, I've written some. They're bad. And Write a novel. Let me get this novel. So I wrote a novel fast, way too fast. Sent it to him. And I swear, Walter, he, um, he must have hired a Learjet to get me the rejection back in the, this back in the mailbox. You know, I still had my arm in the mailbox, and here came the rejection. And he wrote, I didn't like this. Write another one. Well... 
you know, I'm kind of a chip on my shoulder kind of Southerner, and I went, I don't, I don't like you telling me what to do. You know, if, if I want to be a plumber, I'm not going to be an electrician just because you want me to be an electrician. That's when I really started pounding out short. So I didn't write. I wrote short stories from '88 to 2003 or something like that before I ever tried anything longer. George, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm speaking with short story writer George Singleton about his latest book, You Want More. And George, we do want more. You're continuing to write short stories, and then you have written a novel. I've written two. One is called Novel, and it was basically just trying to tell an agent and an editor and a publisher to quit bugging me about writing a novel. And Novel, the novel, which is kind of a metafictional mess, but the main character's name, Novel, um, he lives in a town called Gruel. Actually, I wanted to be a short story called Novel. I had been writing all these short stories in a, an imaginary town called Gruel, South Carolina, and the one that I was writing got a little bit too long. I mean, it got to 50 pages. I mean, that's too long for a short story. I'll just keep plowing ahead. And then, uh, and then I finished writing the stories for a book of stories called Drowning in Gruel. Then I wrote another novel called Work Shirts for Mad Men just to see if I could maybe do a little bit better. And I think it was technically a little bit better, um, but not great. I mean, my, my strength is short story. Okay. I just wonder, since people now are writing novellas, uh, which is a 19th century form. Have you tried that, or is that just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've published... Um, I want to say I've published two, but I can only think of one. Uh, one is at the back of a book of mine called Between Wrecks, I think. And it's... I don't, I don't know where this thing is, and I don't even re- remember it. It's about uh, 90 pages. It's about a guy who's a stand-up comedian takes... Uh, big part of it um, out. As a matter of fact, the stand-up comedian is um, named Ron Rash, or <laughs> something Rash, I forget. Ron and I do this thing where we put each other in, everybody, in each other's books all the time, and it's turned out to be um, a headache, because now I'm having to think, okay, i got to get Ron in here some, somehow, you know, and he keeps getting me. He had a character named Georgina Singleton who had whipworms in <laughs> one of his novels. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I can see you both doing that. I'm fascinated by the titles you have given to your collection. Collections. Between Rex is one of your collections. But your first one had to do with mammals. Yeah, that was the second one. It's called The Half Mammals of Dixie. That particular story uh, came out in... Um, and that was a third-person story, too. And, you know, I'm a little bit more comfortable writing in first person. But it came out in Harper's and then... I think Shannon Ravenel, that book came out with Algonquin, and she wanted to call the whole collection, I think rightly, The Half Mammals of Dixie. Now, with all the um, talk about the word Dixie and changing it, I'm a little bit, imba- I want to just change it to the, half, to the Half Mammals. Just call it that. Well, you mentioned Shannon Ravenel and Algonquin books, which for those of us who followed Southern Studies and Southern Literature, thanks to Lewis Rubin, uh, that was just an incredible project while it existed. Wow. Yeah, really. And, and still, you know, doing really well, doing bang-up stuff today. But back, I think that's what Hub City Press is doing now. I mean, I think they're, they're trying to be what Algonquin was back in 1985 or 86, whenever they um, started, by really kind of focusing on Southern writers and, and Southern poets and Southern storytellers. But those early books, you know, of Algonquin were, you know, Joe McCorkle and Lee Smith and Clyde Edgerton and um, Larry Brown, a whole, whole bunch of them. And Shannon, of course, was a South Carolinian. Yes, she was. I'm very proud of it. George, you, you mentioned the first, well, actually, The Mammals was your second book. Your second book. Yeah, first book was called These People Are Us. Um, it came out with a little bitty press in Alabama called River City Publishing. And the reason why it did I was down there teaching for a buddy, teaching at a, a place for juvenile delinquents, just like guest writer. And this uh, guy came up to me uh, later, Wayne Greenhaw was his, was his name, and he said, I'm with this River City Publishing. Have you ever thought about writing a collection of stories? And I said, Wayne, you know I got a million stories published. And he said, are you waiting for New York? And I went, I guess. I don't know. So he said, well, I, we'd like to do it. And um so he did, and then it it just got a lot of um, 
NPR did a thing. David Malpas came down to, to South Carolina, took him to the flea market. And and then, meanwhile, I'd signed on for that second book with Algonquin. And the first book uh, got reprinted by Harcourt. Wow. And then second book got reprinted by Harcourt, and the third book was Why Dogs Chase Cars with Algonquin. But that's when they started putting things in paperback originals. And that's when uh, publishing changed quite a bit, too, I think, because Kindle came around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, publishing house, like, we don't want to have a warehouse full of hardbacks. We don't know how many to publish. And things really started to change. I, I remember being in a, in a meeting with, then I changed over to Harcourt doing my my uh, my new publisher and I was a meeting with my agent and my editor and both of them they seemed to gang up on me said you have to do more you have to get on social media you have to push these things and I went well, why do you have public relations why do you have PR people in the in your thing and you know I didn't do um, Facebook or Twitter or those things maybe three years ago maybe it hurt me I don't know but I'm not I'm not real comfortable about I'd never make it as a door-to-door salesman. You you mean you don't want people to know when you're walking down the aisle at Publix what you're looking for? <laughs> no, I don't really care about that. No, but some I, people do. I, I I would rather take the Salinger route and just hide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the change in, in, in publishing, and I can remember before I retired from Carolina in 2012, I was on the the USC Press Committee and had been on the committee for a long time. When I first started being on the press committee, you know, academic books, they'll say, well, we'll do a press run of a thousand. That's kind of a lot for, yeah. yeah. But by the time I retired in 2012, we were authorizing press runs of 300. Oh, that's sad. Uh, And now in terms of hardbacks, they're almost a special order. Yeah. Yeah, and they are expensive as almighty get out. I, I saw a person's book yesterday. I, I looked looked up her book. It came out a couple of weeks ago, and they were, it was hardback from Liberty Press out in Oregon. I never heard of, and they wanted thirty five dollars for it, and it was one hundred eighty seven pages. I mean, that's you know, this book of mine is like twenty seven bucks, which I think is a little bit high. Well, that's a good price for a hard, uh, right now. I think it is, but when I first saw it, because you know I'm I'm old, so I'm still thinking, twelve ninety five is what a book should cost. You're not. That. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I remember when paperbacks were a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Um, so, all right, let's turn to some stories in you want more. Now, I'm not going to ask. Well, yes, I am going to ask you because you'll you'll respond. Ask an author to read part of his favorite story. You know, it's like asking you who your favorite grandchild yeah, is yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I'll just say there are two stories in here that I really got into. One was, I could have told you if you hadn't asked. Even Kerr's hate fruitcake and the one that I'm sure must be a personal story of yours, show and tell. Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. You know, that was the first time I wrote a story that was one of those first-person retrospectives, and and I really enjoyed that voice. Um, well, let's look at show and tell and discuss it. All right, I'll tell you a personal story. Okay. When I was a kid, you know, you had show and tell. So, oh, I remember it second through sixth grade or, or so, and I was I did had no public speaking ability. I got really nervous to stand in. I was one of those kids like, I have brought to you a seashell I found. You know, my voice would really quiver. And I remember one day I brought a seashell that I had gotten on the West Coast. And it was beautiful. Kind of a, kind of a, I don't know, not a conch shell, but kind of. And this kid in the class, passing it around, everybody's looking at it. He said, I think it says for sale on the back on the inside of it. And he was accusing me of buying this thing. And uh, and I just remembered, I, I was, you know, no, I didn't. I found it. I found it. And then I think that just kind of um, stuck in my head, that feeling of, um, you know, a lot of my, you know, growing up, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, if you live through childhood, you, you got enough to write about the rest of your life. And my father was loud and boisterous and kind of embarrassed me sometimes. And I, and he was real liberal. Both of my parents were very liberal, and, and that was—we didn't talk about that. And, I mean, you can see this in my stories, you know, like in 
that one story called uh, Fresh Meat on Wheels where the kid's having to go to the sleepover thing or whatever. But um, you want me to read a little bit from the show and tell? Yeah, and I'll just ask you this personally is in this story – the mother has run off. Yeah. Was that true? Was your... No, 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 no. Not at all. Okay. Um, and in the... I'll tell you this, too. There's two... Um, the main character's named Mendel Dawes, and he has a friend... He has two friends in here, Shirley Ebo and um, Compton Lane. And then, then the next book that I wrote after this show and tell was in Half Mammals of Dixie. Next book was called White Dogs Chase Cars, and it's all about those same characters, kind of a linked uh, collection. Okay. But show and tell starts like this. I wasn't old enough to know that my father couldn't have obtained a long-lost letter from famed lovers Eloise and Peter Abelard, and since European history wasn't part of my third-grade curriculum, I really felt no remorse in bringing the handwritten document on lined and hole-punched blue horse filler paper, announcing its value, and reading it to the class on Friday show-and-tell. My classmates would all later grow up to be idiots, in my opinion, since they feared anything outside of South Carolina in general and my hometown of 45 in particular, thus making them settle down exactly where they got trained, thus shrinking the gene pool even more. They brought the usual, starfishes and conch shells bought in Myrtle Beach gift shops, though claimed to have been found personally during summer vacation, Indian head pennies given as birthday gifts by grandfathers, the occasional pet gerbil, corn snake, or tropical fish. My father instructed me how to read the letter, what words to stress, when to pause. I, of course, protested directly after the dry run. Some of the words and phrases reached beyond my vocabulary. The general tone of the letter I knew would only get me playground taunted by boys and girls alike. My father told me to pipe down and read louder. He told me to use my hands better and got out a metronome. For some folks out there, they might not know what a metronome is, the device that your music teacher put on the top of the piano that would go back and forth to make sure that you got the tempo correctly. When your music teacher did that, you knew you were in deep. (laughs) I got a new story coming out somewhere. It'll be, I guess, if I ever have another book about a town so poor that the woman who teaches piano lessons, teaches them in the, in the local church, doesn't have a metronome, though, so she drives her car all the way up to the steps of the church, brings a piano out, and runs her windshield wipers to use as a metronome. It was, it was my favorite image. The story might stink, but I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, continue. Okay. I didn't know that my father, a widower is what he instructed me to call him, although everyone knew how mom ran off to Nashville and hadn't died. My father had once dated Miss Suber, my teacher. My parents' past never came up in conversation, even after my mother ended up tending bar at a place called the Merchant's Lunch on Lower Broad more often than she sang on various honky-tonk stages, waiting for representation by a man who would call her the next Patsy Cline. No, the prom night and homecoming of my father's senior year in high school with Miss Suber never leaked in our conversations. Whether we ate supper in front of the television screaming at Walter Cronkite or played pinball down at the Sunken Gardens Lounge. I got up in front of the class. I knew that a personal, caring, loving, benevolent God didn't exist, seeing as I'd prayed that my classmates would spill over their allotted time, etc., etc., and then we'd go to recess, lunch, and then sit through one of the mandatory film strips each South Carolina elementary school student underwent weekly on topics as tragic and diverse as friendship, fire safety, personal hygiene, and bee stings. I said, I have a famous letter written from one famous person to another famous person. I want to add add another footnote here about film strips. Kids today, (laughs) given technology, this was some crazy machine that the teachers brought into class. And when they say a film strip, they they were in little cans. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd think undeveloped film. And they would put it in there and... Mine, it was almost like a crank. Crank. It would crank, yeah. They, it, was, it was cranked. Very primitive. And sometimes the film, you would get half of one and the half of the next one. You know, you would look up at the screen and it wouldn't be quite right. And know? they needed to move it along. If it stayed too much in place, it would get the film. Burn up. Burn up. Yeah, yeah. So, another trip down. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> okay. Miss Suber held her mouth in a tiny O. 
Nowadays, I realize that she held beauty, but at the time she was just another very old woman in front of an elementary school class, her corkboard filled with exclamation marks. She wasn't but 35, really. Miss Suber motioned for me to edge closer to the music stand she normally used on recorder day. What are these people's fa- what are these famous people's names, Mendel? Ricky Hutton, who'd already shown off a ship in a bottle that he didn't make, but said he did, yelled out, My father has a letter from President Johnson's wife thanking him for picking up paper. My grandma sent me a birthday card with a $2 bill inside, said Libby Belcher, the dumbest girl in the class who later went on to get a doctorate in education and then become superintendent of the school district. I stood there with my folded document. Miss Suber said, Go on. I said, I forget who wrote this letter. I mean, they were French people. Might it be Napoleon and Josephine? Miss Suber wore a smirk that I would see often in my life from women who immediately recognize any untruth I chose to tell. I said, my father told me, but I forget it's not signed or anything, which was true. Miss Suber pointed at Billy Gillen and told him to quit throwing his baseball in the air, a baseball supposedly signed by a shoeless Joe Jackson that none of us believed in, seeing as the signature was printed at best. We never relented on Gillen, and later on he plain used the ball in pickup games until the cover wore off. I unfolded the letter and read, My dearest. These were French people writing in English, I suppose, Miss Suber said. I nodded. I said they were smart, I believe. I want to tell you that if I live to be a hundred, I won't meet another man like you. If I live to be a hundred, there shall be no love to match ours. The entire class began laughing, of course. My face reddened. I looked at Miss Suber, but she concentrated on her shoe. I quoted, That guy who wrote that How Do I Love Thee poem has nothing on us, my sugar booger baby. That's enough, Miss Suber belted out. You can sit down, Mendel. I pointed at the letter. I had another dozen paragraphs to go, some of which rhymed. I hadn't gotten to the word throbbing, which showed up 14 times. I'm not making any of this up, I said. I walked two-step toward my third-grade teacher, but she stood up and told everyone to go outside except me. He has other experiences, and you became the most popular kid in class because— Well, Mendel did. Yeah, not me. (laughs) Mendel became the most popular kid in class because whatever he brought— Miss Suber was going to get upset and send everybody out to have extra recess yeah. time. So, and then on top of that, his father starts paying him money to take these things into class, and he he starts a, a savings account. I think you remember in, in remember when you could start a savings account at a bank or take so much in there, and they'd give you like a dinner plate or a cup or a glass or something well, like well, that. Well, if if you open the account, you got you got a toaster, a toaster, yeah. and then for every deposit, you would get. You know, a dinner plate or a whatever, a mug. Piece of silverware, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other story that I really liked was even curs hate fruitcake. And the reason that I liked it is because, first of all, you bring up what is something of an icon of pre-21st century American South and the fruitcakes that were became commercialized and appeared everywhere. Every civic club sold fruitcakes uh, that were made in in a little town in Georgia. And even the Kiwanis Club that was selling them, the guys would say, ah, nobody's going to eat the darn things. So we'll use them for a doorstop. Doorstop, yeah. <laughs> I think there are probably a lot of uh, addicts filled with fruitcakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but anyway, your your protagonist gets a job to publish a travel guide of towns where you never want to go. Yeah. And he goes to Claxton, and he tells the locals he's going to write a story to bring people to town. He wants to find out what's your main attraction. Well, but one of the things that you said about a town, well, it's a great place to raise children. I think it's in the novel Wolf Whistle by Lewis Norton. There's a town that has a sign, a great place to raise children. Boy, I hope I didn't lift that from him. Um, Well, now I'm getting sued. Uh, You know what? I'll tell you what, though. uh, If I think back on things, a lot of of my stories seem to be about small towns that have kind of are disappearing in, in the South. And, you know, we have a million of them in South Carolina. And they're trying to reinvent themselves. And the last story in this book, what could have been, is kind of a kind of a. It's in second person, and it's kind of a. 
watch out what you wish for story. Because think about all of our towns who that have kind of reinvented themselves, and it's just blocks and blocks and blocks on on uh, frontage roads of Hardee's, Burger King, McDonald's, IHOP, Waffle House, on and on and on. You know. Well, you know what happens when the mill closes in the upcountry, or you go over to the PD and the tobacco warehouses disappear. Well, there goes the town. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, I drove through downtown Greer. I had. Oh, there's a sad story. I, um, my veterinarian lives in Greenville. I had my favorite dog, Mabel, passed away January 8th. So what, I've what, had, what kind of dog was Mabel? She was a um, part pit bull baby. I mean, just she, a she, baby. she was a dog. She was a rescue, yeah. Um, I wrote about Mabel in Garden and Gun magazine. Um, but, but So I was back and forth, and I kind of take some back roads from my house to Greenville and go through downtown Greer. I don't know if you've seen downtown Greer in the last six months. It's it's a whole, it's like downtown Newberry. I mean, it's really come. It's it's beautiful and a lot of pedestrian walkway and not the Greer that I remember, you know, as a as a kid. But you know, we'll. I, I hope everything works out for for everyone. And I know that um, in downtown Newberry, that Figaro's I probably shouldn't be making these advertisements. You know, they have brunch every morning. It's on a big billboard out on the interstate. <laughs> Well, it's a new, it's a new world, and of course, we don't really know what South Carolina is going to be like when the pandemic is over. Yeah. Every time somebody tells me, "Oh, well, we'll get we're we're at the new normal," I hope this is not. I, I do too. The new normal, George. We need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with short story writer George Singleton about his latest collection. You want more? Okay, George. Your writing changed when you finally realized you weren't going to write about Nice, France, <laughs> and you weren't going to write about Memphis, Tennessee, or Washington, D.C., and you were going to write about your hometown, or at least the, the world that you knew. Now, Greenwood, South Carolina doesn't seem to be—I mean, it is a small town, a very interesting small town. Um, it's a lot bigger than the towns that I've made up. Towns I'm making up are amalgams of— of Newberry, Clinton, Abbeville, Hodges, Donalds. 96. 96. Yeah, 96 because the town is 45. Yeah, well, that, uh, I figured that one yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> Woodruff. I mean, think of all these cool little towns. Um, yeah, and, you know, people will say, I know you're talking about Greenwood. And I'm like, well, I got a town of 10,000. Greenwood's always had way more than that. So um, people are going to do that anyway, but what the heck. Well, Greenwood has the widest main street in the world, and, and that doesn't exactly create a small <laughs> no, it's w- main street atmosphere. In the summers, I, I had a, I have a friend named Philip Snotty, and Philip's father was the assistant city manager, and, he, and there was a beautification committee, so he'd hire these high school kids. So um, when they were taking that railroad down, probably in the 70s, early, yeah, mid-70s, uh, I was out there with a weed eater trying to get these cockleburrs out of there, and I drove a garbage truck. I drove a water truck. So yeah, I'm 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 one with the widest main street in the world. Also, at, at one time, Greenwood had the second largest population of albino squirrels. Okay, does that figure into any of your book? I think it does, but I don't remember <laughs> where. But just fun things to know and tell. Okay, you know, I, I can tell you this. I think. Part of what changed with me is I became I just read more and became a a better reader. You know, I um, I'd started off in my younger days reading a whole lot of experimental writers like Donald Barthelme, which I, well, I love, and I think I I kind of sway toward Donald Barthelme in absurdity kind of stories, but not full fledged. Like I won't have the president of the United States showing up in my art studio with a sledgehammer like he does in in um, one of his stories. Um, and I just think it's time and hard-headedness. You know, I don't think you have to—for I, I, for me, um, you know, I wasn't the smartest kid in the classroom, and, and but I was maybe the hard—I had the hard head, and I had a, oh, yeah, I'll show you kind of attitude when I—think about all the rejections uh, as a young writer. I mean, it's—and it's, if you're sending out and writing fast and sending them out, it's a rejection a day at least— um, why today I think I have this imposter syndrome because somebody say, oh, you read another book, way to go. And I go, yeah, but I've had um, uh, thousands of rejections to have 
you know, yeah. 12 good ones. Or I have a colleague say, oh, it's easy for you. Uh, and then you tell them about, about writing. Uh, this comment was made to me by my department chair after, after partisan red coats. And I said, well, I didn't have a sabbatical. I would get up at 5 o'clock every morning yeah. and write for two hours before I came in to teach my classes. And he said, what? I said, yeah, that's the way you write. You write every day, whether it's good or not. I mean, I didn't always keep it. Oh, it's, it's get up early. You know, I always said I just promised myself I will not be like my father, will not ever be like him, you know, brash and loud and get up at four in the morning. And that's exactly uh, I'm not quite as brash and loud. I am brash and loud, but not as much as he was. But it's I don't I don't have an alarm clock. I just wake up at at least at four to to go to get to work. You know. Well, the movies where all of a sudden there you are the struggling author, and then bingo in the middle yeah. of the night, either after the second bottle of bourbon or whatever the spirit moves you, you then produce the Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. novel for the year. That ain't the way it works. I, I've I've thrown uh, TVs out the window because of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well. So you you are still writing regularly, obviously, uh, but your schedule is to write in the morning? Usually, you know, and I'm a little bit superstitious, too. So if I'm writing in the morning, 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 and things are not going well, I'll try to, I'll go to, a lot of it has to do with, um, so my dogs kind of go outside at seven, so I got to go from four to seven or whatever, or they go out at night at seven. So I, you know, after maybe eight to eight to 10 or something like that, I still get up way early anyway. Um, All right. You lost Mabel. How many dogs do you have now? Down to two. You know, at one point we had 11. We had, we used to live across from a tree farm in Dacusville, and people dump dogs out there all the time. As a matter of fact, Mabel lived in the tree farm, and she'd had a litter of puppies, and she barked at me for a few days, wouldn't come close. And finally, I just kind of got down in the grass with a bowl of food, and she came running up and hugged me. I mean, she actually put her arms across my shoulders. And was just the best dog. Had a dog named Dooley that's just an old bird dog. And river who was found floating in a river. But we're down to two. So I don't know what's new. Went to the Humane Society yesterday, but just to drop off old newspapers. You know, they, they got to use those things. But I think we'll be, when this uh, pandemic quits, maybe we'll go in there and start picking up old rescue dogs. By the way, I do remember when you, you wrote the story about Mabel that was in Gardening and Gun. She was a weird dog, I tell you. Great one, though. Yeah. Alfred's giving us five minutes plus. Uh, we can talk about another story. We can talk about what's, what's up for you next. Wherever I'll you tell want. you, I'll tell you, what I think is going next is um, because I don't have anything else to do, I, you know, all my books are linked, not all of them, but a bunch of them are linked in some way. Callistown, every story takes place in this made-up town called Callistown. If you look at the collection staff picks, most of them are holiday stories, which I kind of lost that train because I thought, man, there are a whole lot of holidays. And then it also got to the point where I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be on a holiday. I forgot to add it, and then I'm just throwing in St. Patrick's Day for no reason. So I've been writing these stories where everybody worked for a nonprofit, every character in every story. And uh, the, the title, my working title is The Venturesome Lives of Nonprofit Martyrs. Um, but I'm kind of running out of ideas for, um, for nonprofit. I mean, I don't want to do plain, you know, United Way. I don't want to do that. I want to make up, make up ones, but I don't want to be too goofy. Um, you know, a lot of them are handing out shoes in Appalachia or, or textbooks in, in South Carolina or something like that. Um, most of them have an odd acronym that I probably sh- I can't say on public radio. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing, and it's probably about ready, but to be honest, I'm not in any rush. I ain't in rush to do a book tour that's over Zoom virtual book tour ever again. Well, um, I, you know, two questions. One is, First, how many stories do you think you need to have to have a collection? I mean, your books, I mean, this is a 300-page book. Yeah, that, this book has 30 um, stories in it because it's selected, and I kind of went, you know, I had to kind of look through and see. There are two second-person, nine um, third-person, and 19 first-person. That come up to 30? Yeah. Cl- close enough. Cl- close enough. And usually it's about a dozen you know, usually it's about a dozen stories for me, I think, um, for a collection. 
Okay. Well, you were mentioning book tour, a Zooming book tour, which obviously you must be doing with this. Before we went on the air, we talked about the Old South Carolina Book Festival, which used to be a wonderful event statewide. People come into Columbia, writers come in from, from everywhere. That disappeared from the scene a while back simply because folks stopped coming. Yeah. I don't know. You know, there are there are book festivals that um, that are still doing really well, like Southern Festival of Books in Nashville, I think, is doing well. But, you know, they had to do a virtual book festival this, this past, I guess it was October. Ron Rash and I did it together. We kind of just talked, and I guess people zoomed on. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Um, it just made it's so it's such a it makes me so anxious doing these things because I'm, I'm not the most technologically suave person in the world and more than a few times I got cut off and have to try to get back on and or someone else did or there was no sound for someone talking to me and it just turned out to be nerve-wracking well one of the beauties of the book festival are being on on book tour is the personal interaction yeah uh, even if sometimes it's not, it cannot be pleasant, uh, because that's that interaction is what it, what's, what makes it special. We were all we were not doing in studio for most of the 2020, uh, and somebody said, "Well, just zoom it. It's not the same. I yeah. need I need to see you. Even you're, if you're in a different studio, I can look at you and I can gauge my questions uh, about." wherever the conversation needs to go. Somehow, Zooming, it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah. It just, it's not the same. It's, it's not. And, and you know, I, I was watching some buddies of mine do, I wasn't part of this one, but it got Zoom bombed, and I got, I was scarred for life. I mean, some really wretched things showed up on there, and they had to just cut it all off. And I thought, you know, come on, come on, let's just stop that and just go watch a writer do his or her work or, you know, talk or whatever. But you're right. The thing, uh, this is so, at, at a book festival, you know, I've, I've gotten, um, I mean, it's, I'm really excited to to meet other writers or ones that I've really admired over the years and get to see them. And um, that's just kind of gone. Well, let's pick another story. Okay. George and... What, can I read about a paragraph before it gets weird of um, This Itches Y'all? Do you know that one about the kid who was in the lice he was in a lice documentary, kind of like when we were talking about yeah. those film strips and stuff. Yeah. If there's a dirty word or anything, I'll skip over it. Um, I don't think there is. All right. Well, uh, page 30. Page 30. Okay. Oh, yeah, I can read. I'll read just the first page. This itches, y'all. As a child, I starred in what I considered the lead role of an educational television-produced documentary on head lice. To this day, I can remember my entire monologue. This itches, y'all. The man playing my father was a veterinarian by profession, but he had several community playhouse credits down at the Aiken Little Theater. My mom in this affair was a Charleston ex-debutante who might have made it on Broadway had she not developed a loss of feeling in her left foot, which caused her to gimp around, slapping her soul down sporadically. Later on, she starred in a documentary involving cockroaches and silverfish, from what I understand. The doctor was a regular pediatrician, or so he said. This is 1970. The entire nation transformed itself. At the time, though, no one talked about anything else outside of the head lice epidemic that infiltrated our South Carolina schools. I sat in makeup. A woman took a red magic marker and plowed long furrows on my scalp. She parted my toe head six or eight times sharply, then pulled the felt tip backwards, exactly opposite of how a Boy Scout den leader might teach. I thought, this itches y'all. Okay. George, Alfred's giving me the, the wind-up sign. So any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Oh, not... Uh, Please, please, please um, support your local independent bookstores. Uh, that that helps small towns in South Carolina more than more than imaginable. Okay. Well, George Singleton, the author of "You Want More: Selected Stories," thanks so much for being with us today on the Journal. Thank you, Walter. Thank you so much. 
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. George Singleton is truly a Southern treasure, and I would say a South Carolina treasure. He writes often about a disappearing American South, and that is small town South. It's a South that he really and truly cherishes, and that comes through in his fiction. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.